You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Lonnock. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, March 24th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Thomas Lindsay, Senior Legal Counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights in Part 3 of an ongoing series. More in the bottom half of tonight's program. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Kay Fitzgerald reports on an outbreak of avian influenza in Du Bois County, Indiana. But first, your local headlines. At the Bloomington City Council meeting on March 23rd, the council heard a resolution to establish the Johnson Creamery Building as a historic district. Director of the Bloomington Hand Department, John Zodi, said he has concerns about the stability of the Johnson Creamery site and that it may not be repairable. Um, obviously, we have a, an important situation going on with the Johnson's Creamery smokestack with the uh, uh, safety issue the city of Bloomington uh, issued an unsafe order on the structure in January uh, and then reissued an order uh, on March 11th uh, after we received an updated structural engineering assessment uh, done uh, by the owner, which is, uh, which is Peerless Development, who I believe may be on tonight as well, um, and their attorney is present. Um, so there is a sense of urgency here. Uh, I do want to be respectful of the process, and I hope I've conveyed that in conversations with you all. The new information, uh, the decision that would be before the council, as you know, is whether to designate the Creamery property as a historic district. Uh, the HPC, the Historic Preservation Commission, uh, recommended a map to you that was submitted in your original packet materials. Um, earlier this week, uh, the property owner expressed, well, late last week, and then we sent to the council office early this week, a revised map uh, at the request of the property owner uh, that would have narrowed the scope of that. The ordinance was originally slated on the council agenda for a first and second reading. However, a majority of the council agreed to delay talks of historic designation to their next meeting. The council also voted to opt back into the state's opioid settlement. In 2021, the council opted to vote out of the settlement because it was not a good deal. However, Bloomington Corporation Council Beth Kate presented the new settlement and recommended that Bloomington should rejoin the state's settlement. Uh, so we are here to uh, both present and answer any of your questions that you may have about Resolution 22-08. Uh, just briefly, as uh, the council may recall, at the end of, of last year's legislative session, the state uh, made some uh, uh, legislative changes that really made it quite unfavorable for local governments to participate in the opioid settlement uh, that the state was developing uh, and the level of participation monetarily for local governments was quite low. It would have uh, barred us from uh, participating in further settlements and so on. In this legislative session, 
The uh, state legislature has changed that. They passed a uh, law um, that has amended uh, 4, 16, 15, sorry, my eyesight is so bad right now, I'm looking down at my own uh, writing and trying to make it out, but, uh, but the upshot of it is that they have really uh, solved the problems with the prior uh, legislation and uh, the current level of participation for local governments in the state settlement is 50% of the recovery, and that is divided up uh, into a 15% fund, which in the legislation talks about it being for unrestricted use. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second, and John may have some comments on that as well. Uh, and then 35% uh, being uh, targeted for best practices, opioid treatment, uh, and care and prevention uh, programs. She said that the funds would be paid out over a number of years and that the settlement is a good deal. The proceeds from the settlement distribution are going to be paid out on a schedule with the first payment, we believe, being made in April. The legislation gives cities until July 15th to opt back into the settlement, but uh, because of the uh, anticipated April distribution, we are recommending that the city go ahead. Uh, this is a good deal. It is uh, very good, actually, uh, and it is um, uh, better than we believe uh, the city will be able to do on its own. So we recommend that the city do, in fact, and the council approve the resolution so that the city can opt back in to the settlement and uh, participate in that uh, April distribution. The city council will have a committee of the whole meeting on March 30th, where they will further discuss the Johnson Creamery site. Per and polyfluorochal substances, commonly referred to as PFAs or forever chemicals, are the subject of recent scrutiny. These synthetic organic compounds have been used in everyday products since the 1940s, including common brands like Scotchgard, Teflon, L'Oreal, MAC, Ulta, and CoverGirl. They are used to make non-stick and waterproof products, ranging from cookware to personal care products and textiles. Their presence is widespread. In fact, PFAs have been detected in the blood of approximately 97% of Americans and was even detected in breast milk. PFAs are environmentally persistent, enabling them to accumulate in wildlife and people. Once they enter your body, it is impossible to remove them, meaning multiple exposures to small quantities will build up over time. Many studies have shown that exposure to PFAs has adverse health effects including liver damage, thyroid disease, decreased fertility, obesity, hormone suppression, high cholesterol, and cancer. The 2019 movie Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo as Robert Billot, drew much attention to this issue. Robert Billot, the attorney responsible for bringing these chemicals to light by pursuing legal action against manufacturer DuPont de Nemours, incorporated recently visited Indiana University thanks to efforts by Professor Marta Venier at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. According to the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, community public water systems will be tested for PFAs. This project started in February 2021 and will continue through May 2023 in three phases. Phase two, when community water systems serving less than 3,300 people is tested, is set to conclude in December 2022. The latest released results are for samples collected in August 2021. PFAs were detected in treated drinking water in two of the community public water systems tested, Charlestown and Clark County, and Morgan County Rural in Morgan County. PFAs were also detected in untreated water at Hartford City Waterworks in Blackford County and Aurora Utilities in Dearborn County. 
the detected levels were below the unenforceable EPA health advisory level of 70 parts per trillion, but there are currently no maximum contaminant levels established by the EPA. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the PFAs Action Act of 2021, which would require the EPA to categorize PFAs as hazardous substances and clean up Superfund sites. As of July 22, 2021, the Senate has not voted on the act, meaning PFAs are still completely unregulated. Illinois, Ohio, and Michigan have some regulations in place, but Indiana has not passed any regulation to monitor or restrict PFAs levels. The PFAs Project Lab has an interactive map that depicts known and suspected contamination sites for PFAs across the U.S. Currently, you can contact the state government to get your water tested for bacteria, fluoride, nitrate, lead, copper, and arsenic. For PFAs testing, you need to contact one of the EPA-approved private companies. You can also check online for lists of PFA-free brands. Up next, WFHB correspondent Kai Fitzgerald reports on an outbreak of avian influenza in Dubois County, Indiana. We turn to Fitzgerald for more on the story. On February 9th, 2022, a confirmed occurrence of H5N1 highly pathogenic avian influenza, HPAI, in a single commercial turkey flock in Du Bois County, Indiana, was discovered. This is the first case of HPAI in commercial poultry reported in the United States since 2020, and the first in Indiana since 2016. Officials believe they've learned a lot from the 2015 epidemic, which was termed the most catastrophic animal health disaster in U.S. history. Some nations have already placed restrictions on Indiana chicken, meat, and egg products. If enough birds are sick on enough farms, Prices for chicken products may rise and availability may decrease. Because of this, state officials have euthanized over 103,000 turkeys in an attempt to stop the spread of this flu. This particular strain of the avian flu stems from the feces of migratory birds infected with the disease, much like geese. Denise Dreher Spears, representative of the Indiana State Board of Animal Health, stated that thus far about 119,000 birds in total have been euthanized. In an interview with the Indy Star, she explains, quote, One of the typical signs of highly pathogenic avian flu is that birds will just die with no explanation. You'll see they may come out to the barn and just see that a large number of birds have died overnight. There's something about migratory waterfowl that they can be infected with, but they don't appear unhealthy and they can fly around and spread the virus. The environment can be contaminated by their bird droppings, so if you get someone walking around the driveway and then walks into the barn without changing their shoes or doing some sort of cleaning and disinfection, you can see how it can be introduced into that environment, unquote. As of late, a total of 28 commercial poultry farms in Indiana are now in quarantine. They cannot transport these birds in or out without extensive testing or a specific permit. This recent turkey epidemic in the Midwest is notable because it indicates that the strain has penetrated the Mississippi Flyway, which follows the Mississippi and Ohio rivers and introduces several key poultry states, such as Indiana. Indiana is the third largest producer of turkeys in the U.S., the first in duck production, and the second in table eggs and egg-laying hens. Du Bois County is the leading Indiana producer of turkeys. For WFHB News, I am Kai Fitzgerald.
In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Thomas Lindsay, senior legal counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, about rights of nature. This is part three of this ongoing series on the WFHB Local News. Our guest today is Rights of Nature attorney Thomas Lindsay of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. He serves as a faculty member of the National Academy of Continuing Legal Education and Law Line. He is a co-founder of the Daniel Pinnock Democracy School, now taught in 24 states, which has graduated over 5,000 lawyers, activists, and municipal officials. And this assists groups to create new community campaigns which elevate the rights of those communities over rights claimed by corporations. Uh, Lindsay is the author of many books, including On Community Civil Disobedience in the Name of Sustainability. He assisted the Ecuadorian Constitutional Assembly to adopt the world's first constitution, recognizing the independently enforceable rights of ecosystems. He was featured in Tree Media's film, 11th Hour and We the People 2.0. He's also served as a co-host of Democracy Matters, public affairs radio show broadcast from KYRS in Spokane, Washington. And so are you working on multiple cases at this point? Do you have the one that you're uh, kind of engaged with at the moment? Yeah, so 2021 was a very exciting year in the U.S. for rights of nature work. And the reason for that is that the first rights of nature enforcement cases were filed in U.S. and tribal courts uh, in this country. And up until now, even though the first law passed in 2006 in that little community in Pennsylvania, there hadn't been any direct enforcement cases. These are cases in which nature itself, uh, as a plaintiff in essence, so a river or uh, other ecosystem, would be represented in court in a direct action to stop a certain activity which violated those rights. And the reason why 2021 was so exciting was not only did those first cases be, were brought in the US court system, but also the first cases were filed in a tribal court system. And so just a, a little bit of background, we don't, we don't always think about indigenous communities uh, having their own local governments, but they do. Uh, they're tribal governments uh, that are elected by tribal members. And those tribal governments often have their own tribal courts uh, that deal with a bunch of different issues so that tribal members can have their disputes heard in tribal court rather than going into either state or federal courts. So the first case that was filed uh, to enforce rights of nature provisions was filed in Florida last year. And that case dealt with enforcement of a ballot initiative that was voted on by the people of Orange County, Florida in 2020. So in 2020, if you walked into the voting booth, you saw an issue on your ballot that asked whether certain rivers and waterways in Orange County, Florida should have certain rights. So imagine that walking in, you get your ballot, that's the question on the ballot. Amazingly, the initiative passed by 89% of the vote in this county. And the county is large, it's where Orlando is. So it's a, it's a big metropolitan county, it's 1.5 million people. And that measure passed overwhelmingly, which means it got liberal voters, it got progressive voters, it got Trump voters, it got conservative voters across the board, Basically showing, I think, in many ways that people, that clean water, uh, which was kind of the, the framework underneath which it ran, 
kind of a uniting concept among different constituencies across, across the aisle, so to speak. 89% of the people voted it in. It recognized that these rivers had four rights, a right to exist, right to flow, right to maintain a healthy ecosystem, and a right to be free from pollution, those four rights. And those rights were put into the county charter. So it wasn't just a referendum where it said, hey, how do you feel about this? It was, do you want to amend our county charter, which is like the county constitution of sorts, with this language and with these rights? And the answer was a resounding yes by 89% of the vote. The next year, the project was proposed by a developer in Orange County to put in a new housing commercial development, a 1,900-acre big development that would extinguish about 100 acres of wetlands and adversely impact a bunch of other acres of waterways, streams, marshes, those types of things, uh, simply by filling the wetlands were going to be destroyed by filling them in. Uh, so in Florida, you fill them in, you build houses on top of them. That's, the, that's been the rate. And in fact, Florida has lost something like 60% of all of its wetlands over the last uh, 100 years or so. So it's a big issue. And so a lawsuit was filed with the wetlands being the plaintiffs. So under this law, this law not only recognizes rights, but actually authorizes affected ecosystems to be plaintiffs in an action against the entity that's violating the rights that are contained within the Orange County Charter. So again, kind of bends our brains, not to see a person as a plaintiff, but to see Wild Cypress Branch, which is one of the uh, one of the streams affected by the project is actually a lead plaintiff in the case. And other plaintiffs include marshes and the wetlands themselves and the other tributaries. So lawsuit was filed last year against this company called Beachline South Residential, which is the company proposing to build the 1900-acre development, as well as the Department of Environmental Protection, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, which has issued a permit to the corporation to put the, put the project in. So the question presented to the court is, can the project proceed and can the permit uh, be valid if the permit was issued and the project that's proceeding violates this Orange County law, this, this charter provision, which provides these rights to these waterways within Orange County. So there's a hearing on that case coming up at the end of April. It's very much active. Uh, uh, briefs are being filed uh, and, uh, and all that stuff is happening with the litigation process. So it'd be interesting to see what decision comes out of that particular court. And then the two other really exciting cases were not filed in state court, like the Florida one, but filed in tribal court. So the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, so the Chippewa in Minnesota, uh, have filed a lawsuit uh, dealing with the rights of wild rights or monomen in, in Ojibwe. And the issue there is the state's issuance of a permit to the Enbridge Corporation to take 5 billion gallons of water from the aquifer for the construction and operation of the Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline, which is bringing oil from Alberta down to the Great Lakes region. Uh, so big Line 3 Enbridge pipeline, a lot of controversy. Indigenous communities have been fighting it for eight years. Uh, here, the state decided to let Enbridge use this huge amount of water. Use of that water uh, damages or adversely impacts, threatens uh, the growth of wild rice, which is a cultural imperative for the Ojibwe. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's their central part of, of tribal and cultural affairs in life. And so this case, which is captioned Monoman versus Minnesota 
Department of, of Natural Resources. Monoman is the actual plaintiff. So it's wild rice versus the state in terms of whether this permit should have been issued or not and whether it should be overturned at this point. You're listening to part three of WFHB's correspondent Zero Rose conversation with educator, author and rights of nature attorney Thomas Lizzie on the WFHB local news. This interview covers the rights of nature doctrine, which argues an ecosystem is entitled to legal personhood status and as such has the right to defend itself in a court of law. We now turn back to the conversation. mentioned in the uh, the treaty actually the wild rice is mentioned in the, in the treaty does that does that make a difference yeah it actually strengthens their claim so there are, there are two two basic causes of action for the Ojibwe in that case one is based entirely on rights of nature so a law they passed that we helped them write back in 2018 which recognized wild rice as having certain rights and the second piece of that is the treaty that the Chippewa signed with the U.S. government. There have been many, uh, seven principal ones, but more than that, uh, uh, of all kinds. And the, in 1855, the main treaty was signed, which recognized that the Ojibwe, even though they were giving away land, ceding territory to the United States as part of the treaty, reserved their hunting, fishing, and foraging rights underneath the treaty. So normally, their lawmaking would only impact what's on the reservation. So they only have control, just like a city or a village can pass a law, but technically it only applies within the land within the municipality. Same with the tribe, but the treaty itself gives them certain rights in a much larger area, traditional land or ceded territory land. And the argument is, of course, that if you have a right to hunt, fish, and forage, you can't exercise that right if the state has taken steps to eliminate the resource upon which that hunting, fishing, and foraging uh, is secured. So in other words, it doesn't matter that you have hunting or fishing rights if the state has issued permits to extinguish all of the animals that you would hunt or fish. It just makes logical sense that to exercise the right, you have to have the resource there to exercise the right. What the Ojibwe are arguing is that they have to protect the resource because the state is not. And part of that protection of the resource means trying to nullify these permits that affect wild rice grown not on the reservation, not just on the reservation, but wild rice grown outside the reservation that the Ojibwe also have the legal authority to gather. Uh, and so fascinating case dealing with tribal sovereignty, uh, indigenous control over uh, land within these ceded territories. It's got all kinds of different elements to it, but the rights of nature piece is what gives them the, uh, the base in some ways to augment those treaty powers and actually enforce the stuff outside the reservation land. So that case is, is fascinating. The other part of it, and the reason why it's fascinating is that the state of Minnesota, not wanting to be subject to tribal court jurisdiction over their actions, actually sued the tribe separately in federal court to strip the tribe of jurisdiction, the tribal court of jurisdiction overhearing the case. So the state of Minnesota said, we don't want to live with whatever the tribal court is going to come out with, whatever ruling or decision. So we're going to sue the tribe. They actually sued the judge uh, who was sitting on the case in federal court, district court in Minnesota, U.S. District Court in Minnesota, 
to try to strip the tribal court of having jurisdiction over this case. So just to show you the lengths, you know, a lot of times progressive activists talk about rights of nature and they poo-poo it. And they're like, well, that's crazy or radical. Well, the state understands the power. Our opponents understand the power of rights of nature laws, even though we don't. You know, our, our allies and our progressive friends, they don't really understand the, the effectiveness of it, but the state and corporations, of course, understand the effectiveness of it. The good news is that the U.S. District Court dismissed the case. The state has appealed that to the uh, federal appellate court, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. There was oral argument in December. We expect a decision to come down uh, soon on whether the federal courts have jurisdiction to strip the tribal court jurisdiction over this case. But that's how crazy things have gotten, is that the state's trying to use federal court to strip the tribe of even hearing a case dealing with their right to forage wild rice or have wild rice exist on the reservation. So that's the, the two, second one of the three good cases filed, first cases filed last year. And the third one, which is not as well known, deals with a tribe called the Sauk Seattle tribe, uh, which is in Washington state. And the Sauk Seattle tribe in January of this year, so you know, only a couple months ago, filed a lawsuit against the city of Seattle in the name of salmon, contending that salmon's, the rights of salmon to spawn and exist and survive and all those other things were being violated by the existence of hydroelectric dams on the Skagit River in Washington state that do not allow for fish passage. So there are three dams, three dams on the Skagit River. None of those dams allow for fish transit which is the ability of the fish to get past the dam upstream to spawn. So these are older dams, weren't built with fish passage. When you look at the newer dams, some of them have fish, fish passage off to the sides where fish can spawn up over the dam uh, to then move further upstream. The Skagit River dams don't have fish passage. They've never had fish passage. Salmon populations are now down by 80 to 90% in uh, most of the areas, most of that Skagit River ecosystem. And a lot of folks pin the blame on the fact that the salmon can't get past the dams, which to me is a no-brainer. The salmon can't get past the dams, they can't spawn, and therefore that's one of the reasons why the salmon population is crashing. So the Sauk Seattle tribe filed a lawsuit in the name of salmon, asking their tribal court, the Sauk Seattle tribal court, to rule that salmon has a right to exist and flourish and thrive, and that the dams themselves, unless they offer fish passage, are violating the rights of salmon, uh, to actually have those and, and exercise those rights to exist and thrive and flourish and all those things, all those rights that accrue to the salmon population. Just with the playbook from the Chippewa, copying that playbook, the city of Seattle sued the Sauk Seattle tribe in federal court to try to stop the Sauk Seattle tribe from having jurisdiction to review the case and issue a ruling. And so that case is still pending, hasn't been decided yet. But the fact that the city who owns the Skagit River dams felt the need to go to federal court to sue the Sauk Seattle tribe itself to stop the tribal court from exercising jurisdiction doesn't come as a surprise to any indigenous communities that we work with, because that's the history of the U.S. treatment of tribes in the United States to some extent. But the fact that they would go to federal court to try to strip the tribe or prevent the tribe from ruling in this case, again, shows, I think, how important these rights of nature claims have become, uh, at least in the eyes of some lawyers uh, and the general public and, of course, indigenous communities who've always felt this connection much deeper than just nature is property. Mm -hmm.
That was WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaking with educator, author, and rights of nature attorney Thomas Lindsay. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specialising in solar hot water, solar electricity and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhusky-Schneider, Kai Fitzgerald, Bodie Hoover, and Cade Young in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and The Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnock. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to Never Miss Another Local News Program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB.